I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. Mitch Landrieu is the former mayor of New Orleans, the former lieutenant governor of Louisiana, and one of the most outspoken white Southern voices on race in the United States. He came to the podcast in 2017 after he succeeded in removing the last of four Confederate monuments in New Orleans. Now, four years later, our nation is in a different and more perilous place when it comes to race, as our true history is simultaneously being debated and openly dismissed. And you see the pushback now with people just completely closing their ears and their eyes just to basic history. We cover a lot of ground here, including police reform, voting rights, and what he would say to Senator Joe Manchin about the filibuster. Hear it all right now. Mitch Landrew, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. In a continuation of a conversation you and I have been having for now years, and that is our country, race, our country's desperate need for not only racial reckoning, but also reconciliation. And I would just love for you to just start out by, by giving your assessment on where we are as a nation right now. Well, I think that the word that comes to mind immediately is sobering. And as you said in your question about this continuing conversation that we've been having, it occurs to me that this is a conversation that the country has been having with itself, sometimes well and sometimes very poorly since the beginning of our time. It sure feels like we're heading backwards right now. Um, But I think that I am mindful that we just celebrated the first anniversary of John Lewis's death. Um, And when people would get down in the dumps and say, we haven't made much progress, he would admonish us and say, I'm evidence that we've made a lot of progress, but we still have a very long way to go. And freedom is not free. You have to work for it every day. I I am a little bit chagrined. Um, and not in a good place on why it seems to be so hard for us to do what is so obviously right for the future of the country. But as a practical politician um, whose job it used to be to assess what's possible and what's necessary, it's important for us to realize that we were in, we are in a critical moment that this is a, this is a time and this happens every now and then where the country has to make a decision And that decision really matters about whether you're going to go back or whether you're going to go forward. So I believe that we're in this really very difficult struggle where we have to continue to advocate very strongly for the very simple idea that we all come to the table of democracy as equals and that everybody should have a fair shot at the American dream. And we don't have it right now. And that there are forces that continue to want to reject that very idea. And that is a very dangerous space to be in. It's one that has to be confronted. Meaning, meaning it needs to be spoken about, spoken to, and dealt with, not to be ignored. All right. So you talk about there are those forces. Name those forces. Well, I think, it's, I think that you have this idea that, um, and, you know, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi has, has said something that, I, that I, I had not really thought much of. And that's not true that I hadn't thought much about it. But 
I, the idea was at some point that we made progress and then, then we retraced and then we made progress and we retraced. That was one view of how we, we moved on. He basically has posited the theory that, no, that's not true. We've always moved side by side, good with evil. And one overtakes the other from time to time. And both are always present. And I, I don't know that he's more right than, than wrong, but it sure feels like right now the forces of what I would describe as white nationalism, white supremacy, this notion that somehow whiteness is essential to the future of America for some people who consider themselves to be patriots is a very dangerous idea. I don't think, however, that it's just in America. I think you can see this rise of nationalism and supremacy or this fear of losing happening all over the world. Um, And from time to time throughout our history, this has occurred before. It's important from my perspective to note that it's actually happening, that the rise of, of, uh, of the voice, this voice being put in the White House and being amplified on that level has added a sense of immediacy and urgency that we haven't felt since the very, very early days of the civil rights movement when Bull Connor um, and Leander Perez and Willie Rainick and those guys in the South were really kind of flexing their muscle. Um, we're seeing that more right now. And it's very dangerous because it needs to be confronted. And there's this, you see this with, CR, with CRT, people pushing back on this idea and this conflation of critical race theory with everything that has to do with equality and fairness. That's a pushback. It's a pushback just like you know, not not wanting to teach our real history. It's a pushback just like redlining. It's a pushback just like restricting people's rights to vote. And unfortunately, that is a that is a very familiar refrain that we have seen throughout our history. So in some instances, it's not surprising, but it's also disheartening that it continues to be so pervasive at in the second decade of the 21st century. Are you surprised by how few voices there are from among Republicans, among the political class, the leadership class, pushing back against um, the sort of the radical edges uh, of the Republican Party who exacerbate exactly what you're talking about. Yes, I am. I am very surprised and I'm very disappointed in that, in this regard, that the idea of equality should not be a, a, a party issue, uh, just like the access to the right to vote shouldn't be a party issue. I think that it's fair to expect that there are certain issues in America, fundamental fairness, equality, access to the ballot, um, that, that, that are above and beyond partisan politics. And unfortunately, um, I think that what has happened in the Republican Party particularly um, it has isolated itself um, on the issue of race. And that's, uh, that's unfortunate for a lot of different reasons. I happen to believe uh, that we are a pluralistic society. I think it's really important that we have th- at least two very strong parties and maybe even more. I think it's important for um, the battle of ideas to be waged every day about whether government should be big or government should be small, whether it should be left or whether it should be right. But I don't think there's a whole lot of room in America to discuss from a party perspective whether people ought to have access to the right to vote or people ought to be treated fairly or police officers, you know, should be trained appropriately to use force 
um, when, when and only when necessary and not abuse force in any circumstances. Those are not party issues. Those are American issues. And I think that most Americans should be able to agree on them. I am very chagrined, though, that for some reason, some members of the Republican Party, and I want to say at least a third of the people who self-identify as Republicans, somehow believe that race is an essential part of, of, of why they have to act the way they're acting for fear that they're going to be left out or left behind. And I think that it's an unnecessary fear. I don't think it's right. I don't think it's good for the country. And, uh, and I, am, I am chagrined that more people are not speaking more forcefully to the issue. So in your work um, with E Pluribus Unum Fund, which you founded, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, after your time as mayor of New Orleans, which you were from 2010 to 2018, what are you, what are you finding out? What are you hearing? Because part of your work with E Pluribus Unum is going out uh, and talking to people, particularly in the South, about their views. One of the things that I, that I experienced when I was a state representative for 16 years in the Deep South, serving with David Duke in the legislature during the early 90s and watching that, um, having grown up as a white guy in the South, having then served as lieutenant governor of what is now one of the reddest states and actually having trying to rebuild one of the great American cities. Um, one of the overarching lessons that I came to just assimilate was that there was no issue that we talked about that didn't have race as a component. And our inability to address this issue, to try to heal this wound in a real purposeful and intentional way, stopped us from being good and stopped us from getting anywhere close to what the promise of America is. I actually have a great sense of hope and optimism for the country because um, I live in a very multicultural place. And I, I, I can tell you I just believe this, um, that America's best days aren't even close to being within our grasp, but they're completely out of reach unless and until we can figure out how to go through the issue of race and get to the other side of it, because it is an old wound that has never, ever been talked about. It's never been addressed. It has not been accounted for. And as a consequence, like any wound, it cannot heal unless until you do that. This idea today that the way to deal with race is to not talk about it, to ignore it, to deny it, to basically close your eyes, your ears, and your hearts to the possibilities that our country, as great as this country is, has made some terrible mistakes and has not really welcomed everybody to the table of democracy is a terrible mistake. And it will make us less good as a country. It will squelch our potential. It will limit us from competing on an international level. And we won't. We have not yet even begun to scratch the surface of America's greatness because we don't include everybody in what we do. And so E Pluribusunum was formed for the purpose of really trying to speak to people and listen to them and to understand how it is that we can move people through. And I use the word through on purpose because you can't go around it, you can't go over it, you can't go under it. And by the way, what this means is it's painful. What it means is it's hard. What it means is that it's uncomfortable to have discussions, but let's learn how to have them and see if we can come some to some accommodation where A, we can peacefully coexist, which is the minimum that we should expect of each other, and then B, rush to each other, understanding that diversity is our strength and our weakness. Now, not surprisingly, what I'm finding is that it's hard and that especially white people, we don't know how to talk about it. We really have not had any experience because we have um, pushed aside the issue of truth and reconciliation, like they had a process in South Africa or like they've had a process 
in Germany and America, which prides itself on being the most open country, you know, the most optimistic country for some reason on the issue of race is so closed um, and, and so timid that we have almost refused as a body to to really just kind of be forthright with it. And you see the pushback now with people just completely closing their ears and their eyes just to basic history about what was what really happened at the Tulsa riots, what really happened, you know, and you can you can list a whole you could, you could write a whole list of, of, of examples of us denying a history. And unless and until we figure that out, it's going to be really hard, you know, for us to be as open as we need to be so that we can benefit from everybody's participation. So then, Mitch, why? Why are people closing their eyes? Why are people, instead of listening to the folks around them who say simple things like, no, there is no good, sli- good side to slavery, um, why is that such a controversial statement <laughs> to make? I think that, that I have seen evidence of very powerful white people um, now beginning to say, I, want, I do want to talk about this. So the other day I, I hosted a, a conversation um, between the president and CEO of NASCAR, um, which, as you know, has had significant troubles and is looked upon as being a predominantly white, you know, sport. Um, simultaneously, though, we had a conversation with Brian Moynihan, who's the head uh, of Bank of America. Both of them, both white men, very powerful, have been very forward in thinking about how they can now use their agency to make sure that both of their companies open up and move into. That's that's fairly significant. Also had a had a, a long podcast talk with Pete Carroll, who, as you know, is the coach of the Seahawks and a white coach of a major um, sports franchise talking about this too. So you do see that movement. You also see though, um, a very loud, small group of people who self-identify as Republicans, mostly, who are actually just pushing back very aggressively. So I don't want to create the impression that it's all white people. I do see, I do think there's some movement, but I do think that there is a group of people. And if you listen to them, um, uh, through, through the, their words and through their actions, it occurs to me that they are afraid. They feel like they're losing something. They don't fully know people of color. They don't really know our entire history. And as a consequence, they, they're blinded to it. And listen, a lot of, Jonathan, what we're experiencing right now is Americans really not knowing our full history. Now, why people aren't open-minded and open-hearted and curious um, and want to learn, I, I don't know that I can answer that. I'm not a social anthropologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm only observing their behavior. And they're pushing back really, really hard. Um, I just think that we have to keep pushing from this side and hope that we can penetrate their hearts and their minds um, and, you know, hopefully get us to a better place. You know, one of the, one of the arguments um, I still hear and have heard for as long as I've been alive um, is, you know, well, you know, m- my family didn't own slaves. So wh- why should I and my family today be held accountable for that? Um, you know, that stuff is in the past. Uh, can't we just move on from that? How do you respond to white people who make those arguments? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a very common refrain that you hear, especially there's some words that trigger people. You know, white privilege triggers, you know, white, some white people. The idea of reparations, you know, does as well. These are terms that are, from their perspective, are new in, in the conversation. And so they push back on it. And one of the things they do say 
that, that you hear from some white people who push back on this, either through polling data or through focus groups, is that, listen, it was a long time ago, and they have no, they have no, uh, they will not acknowledge that the consequences of a long time ago actually are not a long time ago, A, um, and currently exist today. When you take the time to walk them through lynchings, redlining, gerrymandering, voter suppression, you actually can get some people to acknowledge that, oh, my goodness, that's not so far in the past, A. Um, and B, I can understand how this idea of not being able to build generational wealth has put me in a position, white person, of being a little bit better than African-Americans who were not able to um, obtain the things that normally came to white people, let's say, after the GI Bill. And so there is some there is there is a pathway to understanding. But many people just say that wasn't me. And they conflate. And, and here's the, here's the here's what I think is the is the way to deal with this. You say to people, listen, I am not personally blaming you for what happened in the past. You obviously were not there. It's not your fault. But now that those of us that are here that have benefited, those of us that are in power, white and black, it is certainly our responsibility to fix it because we are the ones who are in the position of power to do so. So in many instances, when I'm speaking to white people, I try to do this in a way where they can hear it and and say to them, you know, If you talk to any African-American at all, they'll tell you that they're tired. They're tired of having to explain to white people things that white people ought to A, know, or B, figure out themselves because you can learn by going to buy a book and reading a book and the black community is exhausted, number one. Number two, they say that racism is a white person's problem. And, And what I try to explain to white people is they're not saying that it's your fault. What they're saying is that if if there is institutional bias that's built into the finance system or into the political system or into the economic system, it can only be changed by the people who are in power. And if you look at who is in power and you just ask yourself the question, well, who does run the Federal Reserve? Who is the president of the United States? How many African-Americans are in the Senate or in the House of Representatives? How many governors are black? How many district attorneys are black? How many police chiefs are black? What you will come to conclude is inescapably is that white people in America today have power. And if the institutions need to be changed, the only people who can change them are people in power. And and so we have to lean into it. And by the way, it's in our best interest to do so because the country is going to be better because diversity is a strength, not a weakness. And in every institution that I have seen in my short 60 years of life that has become whiter, has become smaller and less wealthy, every one of them. And that's true no matter what genre and you, or what platform you're talking about, politics, music, art, history, science, government, the private sector. And so what I'm saying to many Americans is we have to get ready for the future because the future is coming. Demography is changing dramatically and we have to prepare ourselves and we're going to be better for it. Uh, in a lot of ways, the future is already here if you go to states like California or Texas. But let me push back on something you just said when you said when you look at who's in charge and and you mentioned, you know, you know look who's in, in charge in, in the White House. There were some people who said when President Obama was in the White House, look, see, race, there is no racism. So how do you how do you counter the argument? Well, we had a black president. Yeah, no question. I, that's a that's a constant refrain. It's it's just such a it's it's just such a way to fade off of, you know, staying with the real problem just because you, and then you ask them, well, gee, how many presidents have we had? 
Now, one of them was black. And so that absolves us from our entire history of difficult consequences. Just because President Obama got elected, it was really nice that he got elected. It was a great thing. It was a, it was a leap forward. But then all of a sudden we elected President Trump and we elected the clapback. Um, and we seem to be resting in that. And so this work is hard. People also say, well, gee, it's not that bad. Kamala Harris is a person of color and she's the vice president. Yes, that's true as well. But then you ask yourself, but if you look at the entire power structure, the imbalance is so obvious and so stark, it is still the people in power's challenge to fix. And the people in power happen to be overwhelmingly white. So if the system is going to change, only the people who can change it can change it. And that would be us. That's why it is a, it is a what is called a white problem. Maybe you say it another way. It's the problem of the people who are in positions of power, whoever they may be, to actually make sure that we change the system designs that have produced this unequal balance that we have. Hence, you get into this argument about equity versus equality. And now you can see the haters coming after the whole concept of equity, which is, look, I'm sorry about the past. Let's just call it even and we'll just go forward from here, which means you'll never catch up. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let me get you on to explain further something you wrote in CNN.com and back in April. You write, the misperception that racism is individual rather than systemic as well is one of our nation's most persistent and counterproductive myths. And so, Mitch, my question is, could you explain why white people are so invested in holding on to this myth? Well, they don't first... It, it could be because they don't see it and they don't understand it. So when you say implicit bias, implicit means kind of invisible. It's just something that, that it's, it's something that we do and we don't even recognize we're doing it. And when somebody points it out to us, we go, oh, wait, I didn't mean anything by it. So you get into this whole issue of intent versus consequence. Um, and when, when you try to bring, for example, um, this to a police department where you say to police officers, listen, I'm not saying that each of you is a hateful, mean person. I said, but in your mind and because of the way that you were trained, you were trained to basically think that black is bad and white is good. And so when you see a black kid walking down the street, a Terry stop, which is what is the constitutional basis for a stop and frisk, turns into stopping first and asking later, as opposed to treating people based on their behavior and not the color of their skin. Do you notice that you even do that? Do you notice, for example, that after all of the studies say that you treat African-Americans that you pull over differently from whites? Wow. Well, okay. And no, I didn't. Well, here's, here are the numbers. Look at the numbers of arrests. So that's just, that's just in policing. If you see this with uh, how we create school districts, what neighborhoods are in the district who can go to the good school versus the bad school? If you do it with gerrymandering, how do you create legislative districts to decide who's going to have power and who's not, where the federal funds are going to go? Did you know in the GI Bill, for example, 
that there were certain communities that did not get loans and others did. And now that you know how wealth is built up because your parents helped you build up your wealth, can't you now see? Now that I've shown that to you, can you help me figure out that that is a systemic problem, which means directly that I'm not saying that you're inherently racist. What I'm saying is that we created these things from biases that we didn't even know that we had. Let's look at them. And the answer, so so people go, okay, I'm open to that, but then they get afraid. Does it mean you're going to come take something from me? How much of what I have do I have to give up? And so it's this real human need to to want to maintain what it is that you have because change comes hard. I do think that that going through it requires almost retail communication between and amongst human beings that are in proximity to each other. That's one thing that it takes. It's also true that it takes on a, on a political level voices um, and on a business level who say, yes, I see it and I'm going to use my agency to change it because I think it's going to be better from everybody. I don't think, for example, that this is a zero sum game. I don't think what one person has, the other person can't have. I don't think it's about seeding power. I think it's about sharing power. I think it's about growing the pot. And it's interesting to me, especially from conservatives who have believed in trickle down economics something happening up here that can trickle all the way down. What about trickle up justice? If, if in fact it happens on the ground, why can't that be the place where it starts? And why can't the pie get bigger for everybody in terms of opportunity? I happen to believe that it can. And I've seen a lot of evidence. I just think that it's just hard for people to change. I like that trickle up justice. Um, Let me get you on some um, some political topics, and I'm, I'm only calling them political because that's how we talk about them these days. And since you talked about the police and implicit bias in police, and you're a former uh, mayor who, in conversations we've had in the past, you've talked to me about your interactions with police, especially because of shootings and things in New Orleans. I'm just wondering, in terms of police reform, how much of a problem are police unions and police contracts in holding police accountable? Well, let me, let me, this is a very tough area to talk about. So let me, let me start in a place that people probably won't like. Being a police officer is really a hard job. Um, and whether you're a policeman or a firefighter or you're uh, EMS, people who put themselves in harm's way for other people um, should be lifted up and thanked. And, and I do. However, it is, it can also be true that those individuals, many of whom perhaps were not hired appropriately because they weren't screened appropriately or trained appropriately or supervised appropriately or held accountable for behavior that they probably um, brought with them is not good. And there's way too much of that. And that has to change. And when I became mayor of the city of New Orleans, um, there were a number of police officers that had done some terrible things post Katrina. Um, and we were under the guise of the Justice Department. I invited the Justice Department to come in. I thought it was important for me as the mayor to say, I'm going to use my power and my agency to help change this department. We have been on the consent decree now for 10 years um, in the city of New Orleans. It's the largest and robust consent decree. And we had to change everything that we did. And it started with hiring the right people and making sure that we were actually doing background checks to make sure that we didn't have people that were just maladjusted before you put a gun in their hand and you put somebody's liberty, you know, in, 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 in their, their mind. Um, we also had to reach completely change the training Academy on the issue of use of force. And the idea was you don't ever use force first. You always use it last and you only use it in proportion to the threat 
and you only use it when your life is in danger. Now, somebody said, I think President Clinton used this phrase and he stole it from somebody. I'm sure that there's a lot of distance between the lip and the cup. And so all of a sudden you can see police officers saying, well, that that was dangerous. So I shot. And, and you can see a thousand different examples of how, no, you should have never done that at that point in time. So those behaviors, the same thing is true with, uh, for example, a, a plan we put in place called EPIC. It's an acronym for ethical policing is courageous. And this theory is that when the three or four police officers engaged in a stop and one of them is acting out here, Derek Chauvin. All right. And he's got a knee on somebody's neck that what you train the other three officers to do is to go pull Derek off of George. That's what you do. You don't go stand there and say, oh, he's my superior. Let me get out of the way and then let me lie about it and then let me cover it up. That's not what you do. So we had to retrain them. We had to actually put them in circumstances where we said, you're going to get honored for actually telling your fellow officer that they were doing the right thing, not outed, right, for being a rat when you, when you closed your mouth. All of those things have to be changed. Now, one of the things that I did without even the consent decree requiring it was I ordered body cameras to be put. I think we were one, I don't, I don't want to say we were the first, but we were, we were early, early, early in the, you have to wear a body camera and the union um, and, and the, the guys that advocate for police, their first reaction was, no, we don't want to do that. Um, and we were in a position where I could order it to be done. I, I felt fairly strongly a, that it needed to be done, but B more importantly, that the camera was going to be the police officer's best friend, that if they used it appropriately and it helped modify their behavior, that it was going to save them and save other citizens. And it has been true, Jonathan, I have to say, there have been a couple of police-involved shootings in the city. Um, and when that body camera footage was, was released right away, if the perpetrator had a gun and the police officers were in any serious threat of harm, the community writ large, and this would be the not-for-profits, the faith-based community, who, by the way, saw the footage very quickly, said that was transparent, that was open, the police officers were in harm's way, they did the right thing. It wasn't a problem. However, when the video showed something else, the justice system worked the way it should. And that's really the best that you can hope for in these circumstances. And I'm hopeful. I'm just very hopeful that these police unions who advocate for these individuals will basically take the position that, listen, just because you're wearing a uniform, if you act inappropriately, if you act unethically, if you behave in a way that you want trained, you're not really part of our police force. And this really isn't what I'm so interested in is this isn't that radical an idea. I went to Jesuit high school in New Orleans. We wore um, uniforms. Our principal told us, he said, son, when you step your behind out of your house in the morning and you're standing at that bus stop and you have that uniform on before you even get to campus, if you act a certain way, you're under my jurisdiction. I'm going to punish you because I always expect you to uphold the integrity of and the principles of who we are as an institution. It's that they have the police unions have to change that idea and not defend every human being who put a uniform on, who actually just violated their oath of office because it hurts not only the public, but it hurts police officers as well. That attitude change will make this a lot easier for us as a country. And I'm, I'm really calling on the police unions to think that way rather than in a defensive posture, which is what they have been in um, in the last couple of years. We're doing this via Zoom, which means I can see I can see you, Mitch. The listener obviously can't, but because I can see you, I can see what's behind you. 
And what's behind you, if I if I'm noticing this right, is a picture of you and the late Congressman John Lewis uh, in a in a picture over your shoulder. And you know, as you mentioned, we are a year out um, from his passing, and we are talking a lot daily about voting rights, the danger to voting rights, um, what's happening in Georgia, what's happening in Texas, what's happening in a majority of the states around the country. And every conversation boils down to what's going to happen to the filibuster. And then it boils down to one person. And that's Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Have you ever talked with Senator Manchin ever? And how would you talk to him and quite frankly, to the other senators hiding behind him, about his current position on getting voting rights to a vote in the Senate. Um, let me let me start at at, at forty thousand feet. First of all, it's it's important for every American to pay attention to what is and is not happening in China and in Russia. What just happened in Haiti, where um, they assassinated their president in other parts of the world where people live and are governed by force. And the genius of America is that we have peaceful transitions of power that are based on the people being able to voice what it is that they want because the elected officials work for the people, not the other way around. That is why voting is the most essential right in America. It is the thing that separates us. It is the thing that, that gives foundation to the very idea of we the people. That, that's what this is about. So this is absolutely not, in any circumstance, a partisan issue. And it is worth fighting for. John Lewis, a dear friend who took a whooping on the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge when he knew that sheriff was going to hit him in the head, stood there. I think he was 23. He had his little trench coat on. He had his mm-hmm. thing on. And this picture that you see is him hugging me in the Capitol under a picture of George Washington. That's what that picture is that you can see over my shoulder. And I was just telling him how much I loved him and how thankful I was for his courage because his courage helped me get through being the mayor of the city of New Orleans. I had his picture behind my desk every day and I got afraid a lot of times. And when I stopped, when I got afraid, I looked at John Lewis and said, you know, he was out there every day. And I just wanted to thank him for that. Um, on the issue of voting rights, I have not spoken to Senator Manchin about this, the issue of the filibuster, but I know Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin and I served, I was a lieutenant governor when he was the secretary of state of West Virginia. Um, and I have come to know him over the years. I like him very much. I respect him. Um, I think he's wrong about the filibuster. Um, and and I, what I would say to him, and as you know, my sister, Mary, was a United States senator mm-hmm. for 16 years. And I have a little sense of how senators think about processes that they think help them work together over time. And so I respect their view. However, I am not of Washington. I am, I'm, I'm a local politician. I was a statewide elected official and a state representative. And it seems to me that this notion of elevating process over substantive change the lack of which creates an existential threat for the future of a democracy is misplaced. Um, and in this particular moment, on the issue of voting rights, I don't think that the filibuster ought to be used as an excuse for not giving access to the polls to most Americans. And so I would say to Joe, um, if I saw him and if he asked me, 
Um, I would say, listen, I, I appreciate that you're trying to create bipartisan support on issues like infrastructure and the environment. You think that long term that's better. I respect the fact that you come from West Virginia and, you know, maybe only 10 percent of the people in West Virginia are people of color, if that much. Um, and so you may not feel, you know, the, 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 the pressures of, of, of what it is that we feel throughout the South. But I think that you, you're misreading this moment. And I think that it's really important that when the democracy itself is at risk, that you lean forward and find a way through regular processes, which could mean carving out voting rights from the filibuster, that you do so in this moment. And I, I think it's critical because I do believe that the founding fathers did not portend that 23 states that were run by mostly all white men could use the power and manipulate the Constitution in a way to deny to the majority of the people in the country the right to vote. And that is what is so dangerous about where we are right now. We have never been here where we've had such a minority that in running state legislatures and and in the Senate that are actually trying to govern the behavior of the majority who vehemently disagree with him. And I don't think that that is a condition that can stand for a long period of time and to have us remain at peace. I think that's a that's a very difficult thing for us to do, which is why I'm calling on all the leaders in America to really rise above partisan politics and to get this piece right before we go to fighting about whether you believe in tax cuts or not. Let me get you on this last question, because one of the things, and I hope listeners who might be hearing you for the first time or hopefully the third time on this podcast are hearing why there was such buzz around you, I believe, in in. 2020, like, is is Mitch Landrieu going to run for president? Um, and I think that's because of what you did in New Orleans and bringing down the Confederate statues, what you did in New Orleans in your speech when the last statue came down, how forthrightly and honestly you talked about your city's history, our nation's history, not just as an American, but as a, a Southern white American. Why do you feel it is so important for you as a Southern white and politician to be so honest and forthright about who we are as a country and why we must be so open and honest in in this conversation on race? The answer to that is really simple. I really love America. And I believe in the idea of America. I believe in the promise that we made to each other. And and as a consequence, as a white male from the South, it's really important that other white people in this country begin to understand that we have in many ways failed to live up to that promise and that how we have acted in many ways has not been helpful to the country itself. This issue, and, and listen, Dr. King spoke to this pretty strongly. You hear Dr. Barber talking about it. This is not just about race. I mean, in this instance, it is about protecting people who have not been protected. But really what we're doing is calling America to purpose and calling America to honor the promise that we made to each other as fellow Americans and who we are as America. That's really what this issue is about. And I don't know, I mean, I can just tell you, Jonathan, in my experience, my life is just so much richer and deeper because of um, the people that have been a part of my life, black and white and brown. Um, and, and diversity, 
I have seen being from New Orleans, which as you know, is a great multicultural Mecca. We have many problems, but people will tell you when they come to our city, what they love about it is it's people. And then they'll tell you they like the trees and then they'll tell you they like the music. Then they'll tell you they like the food. But New Orleans, as people have said, will get all up in you because we are proximate to each other and we care about each other and we love each other. And I have, I have just benefited so much from my friendships with all of my friends of different races, creeds, and colors. I can't imagine who I would be without them. And I see great promise in America in that regard. And it makes me weep. I weep for my beloved country when I see how much we lose and how much we leave behind because we're so closed off from each other. And I, I just have a, because I'm a, you know, an undying optimist, I have a great vision that America hasn't even scratched the surface of what it is that we possibly can do, but it is absolutely clear how much we're holding ourselves back. It's a painful, it's like a parent watching a kid continuing to make the same mistake over and over and over again. I have five children. And for those of us that have friends and family members that keep running into the wall and you keep saying, why do you keep running into that wall? It's going to hurt you when you do that. And you, and they keep doing it. It just causes you great pain. And so I really feel like it's not my fault either. I mean, I, I did, it's, but it is my responsibility I mean, I'm the lieutenant governor of the state, for God's sake. I'm the mayor of the city of New Orleans, for God's sake. I'm a father. I'm a coach. I'm a, all of these different things. In my life, it, I am responsible for living in a way that uplifts other people. And so is everybody else in the country. And so I would just say to um, the people that being from the South, it's important for us who sold more people into slavery than anywhere else in the lower 13 Southern states, and particularly New Orleans, that because we were such a, a, a very critical piece of what America has become, we need to be the critical leaders in what America needs to be. And that's why it's important for those of us. Having said that, I will say this, I'm gonna put my Southern hat on. I get really ticked off when my friends from the North think it's just us people from the South that have a problem. You know that is just complete and total and I'm just gonna call it for what it is. And that's what people need to get right, whether you're in Boston or whether you're you know, in San Francisco, whether you're in Detroit, Michigan, I mean, you call it, right? We, racism continues to challenge all of us, no matter where we happen to be in this country. And unless until we get through it, you know, we're going to continue to struggle unnecessarily and fight fights that have, should have been put to rest a very long time ago. Mitch Landry, thank you very much for coming back to the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. It's great talking to you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Capehart J.